entrepreneurs, business owners, professionals who seek excellence, bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builder Show. Here's Marty Wolf. We still got a long way to go. Yes, we all got a long way to go. Welcome to the Business Builder Show with Marty Wolf and today with our guest host, Jay Kelly Hoey. Along with Kelly and our executive producer, D.C. Taylor, we will be your guys on this learning journey. To learn more about Kelly, check out her website at jkellyhoey.co. That's jkellyhoey.co. Okay, Kelly, let's get the conversation going. Thanks, Marty. This is Kelly Hoey, guest host of the Business Builder Show. And I am particularly thrilled with um, who we've got on the show today. We've got Broke Millennial, a.k.a. Aaron Lowry, who is author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. Not that I wouldn't be thrilled to have you on the show, Aaron, but we both share the same publisher, Tarcha Perigi, and editors, Lauren and Stephanie. So this is particularly exciting for me to have a kindred author on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Keeping it in the family here today. Exactly. So you like a previous Business Builder Show guest who's actually mentioned in your book at page 204, uh, Jill on Money, Jill Schlesinger. Um, you didn't set out to be a financial expert. Um so share with listeners who may not know you uh, how a liberal arts major arrived at a career as a personal finance author. Well, I needed to make money. So I guess that's the big thing, taking that liberal arts degree and putting it to good use. But I would say, kind of joking aside, to me, it's the perfect merger of the fact that I studied both theater and journalism. And I was asked all the time, what are you actually going to do with those degrees? And here I am creating the perfect blend of the two, because I not only talk about money, but I go out and do speaking engagements and media, which is the blend of all of that theater. And then when it comes to personal finance, a lot of what I do is research focused. And that kind of harkens back to the journalism days. And it's a very long story, to be honest, about how it all came together. But a lot of it had to do with the fact that my parents raised me in a household that was very financially literate, which is not terribly common. And I'm very fortunate that my parents talked about money all the time. And what you grow up around is normal. And within about a year of living in the quote unquote real world after college, I started to become very clear to me how many of my friends did not understand how money works, didn't feel any sort of control over it. And for the most part, even those who came from very privileged backgrounds just felt very overwhelmed. And I wanted to do something about that. And it was 2013. So at the time, blogging was still slightly trendy. And that's where it all began was at BrokeMillennial.com. That's that's awesome. Let me dial back, you know, and I, I think we should talk about, you know, the kinds of things that your dad shared with you and your mom and, and your household and, and all of that um, for people who are listening and, you know, may find themselves kind of going, oh, right, I've got a kid going off to college or I've got someone looking for their first internship in my family and I've never talked to them about these things. But let's dial it back to uh, age 23 when you were working three jobs uh, beyond the hustle and passion. Um, how'd you set yourself up? for self-employment? Well, for self-employment, for me, that was a very, well, long process in the context of my short working life, I guess you could say. But I was 23 when I was working 
well, 22 actually, when I was working at The Late Show with David Letterman, which is no longer even a job because the show no longer exists. And then I was a barista at a well-known mermaid logoed coffee chain. And then I was also a babysitter. And I was working those three jobs because all of them were part-time jobs. And I was trying to kind of bundle those together in order to just survive. And then I got my first real full-time job, and that was working at a public relations boutique agency. And man, I thought I was rich because I was going from $23,000 to $37,500 plus benefits. Oh, I had health insurance. I had a 401k. I was feeling good. But in tandem, I then started Broke Millennial. And from that, I started to also get opportunities to freelance, right? And I was still babysitting. So I was side hustling in addition to my day job. And my day job, while it wasn't a ton, was enough to cover all of my necessary bills. So I just started to save all of the money I made side hustling. And then that continued when I job hopped like a true millennial over to a startup company. And that startup company worked in fintech, so financial technology, and it was a financial product comparison website. And that's where I really cut my teeth learning all about the ins and outs of how banks works and credit cards and different ways that companies can try to screw you over and how to know all the tricks and the traps. And I also continued to side hustle my entire time working there. So when I wanted to go out full-time self-employed, I had a really nice nest egg and a lot of runway prepared, but I had also been moonlighting in the job that I wanted to do as a self-employed person. So I had really tested the business before I went out on my own and knew that it was viable. I'm sitting here listening and I'm laughing. So my first career was in as an attorney and graduated from law school back in 1991. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, when you have that first job that really pays, I'm just going to say it, shit. You, <laughs> you remember that it's like burned in your memory, the number, you know, oh, like yeah. when you said, hey, and I was making, you know, 23,000. I remember my decision to move to Toronto versus staying in Vancouver was salaries in Vancouver at the time were, um, let me think, fourteen to sixteen thousand dollars for an articling student, and it was thirty six to forty two thousand in Toronto with the same cost of living. It was not a big, like, not a big decision. You know, I would take more money in a bad winter any day. Uh, so anyway, that was life. I heard you snort and laugh there in the background, Marty. Yeah, well, I was thinking of you, Kelly, when uh, when she was telling that story. You know, because I know your story. Um, so you're an entrepreneur. You went through that gauntlet, I guess I'll call it that. So the book is for millennials, but can I dwell a little bit at this point in time? I guess I'll ask, do you see ongoing mistakes that typically young entrepreneurs make in terms of investing or saving or protecting uh, what they have? Uh, For instance, I'd be willing to bet a lot of people don't even have an idea. So let's stay with entrepreneurs starting small businesses. What common mistakes do you see people making? I would say there's two big ones. The first one is not actually testing the viability of your idea before launching into it. It's easy to get overzealous and excited or to just hate your day job so much you can't take it anymore and you just want to quit and try something on your own. And you need a good amount of runway. For me, I think part of this is a risk tolerance assessment. I wanted to have at least one year of savings in addition to my retirement fund. So this was not being not having to tap my 401k or my IRAs in order to fund my life because I didn't want to have to pay the penalties. So I had a year's worth of money 
saved up that if everything went sideways for me as a self-employed person, I was going to be able to pay my bills. And I had really simulated what the experience was going to be like, because another thing that I did towards, I had an end date in my mind of when I was going to give notice at my work. And about four months before that, I started to put my salary money into savings and then lived off of the variable income I was earning as a writer to just simulate the experience of what it was like to live on a variable income. So one of the big things to me is making sure you have a very healthy nest egg and you've tested the viability of your product. But the other side is retirement. I think so often, especially when we're self-employed, but this also is for people who are traditionally employed, we either put off investing for retirement, and notice the wording there, I don't like saying save for retirement because it's a misnomer, you are investing for retirement, and we put it off as something that can happen in the future, we'll worry about it in five years, we'll worry about it in 10 years, and you wake up one morning and you either never started or you never really took it seriously and didn't put enough money aside. And when you're self-employed, you don't have the option of an employer match. You don't have those kind of incentives. You have to be putting enough money aside for yourself. And that is something that needs to just be built into the operation of your business. I, I'm so glad you raised the R word because um, I know it's um, Amy Resnick, who's over at Pensions and Investments, tweeted this. And it was some stats about Americans and lottery and how 18% of Americans are basing retirement plans on hopes they will win the lottery. And that and, and that's 18% of Americans, but 26% of millennials. An even more ridiculous percentage actually believe this is a reasonable plan. How do you get through to those people who think that investing is risky, but buying a lottery ticket is a good retirement plan? <laughs> Uh, I wish there was a simple answer to that. The other thing, too, that we're currently facing, especially with specifically millennials, and I would argue some older Gen Z, is this sort of doom and gloom that there's no point in investing for retirement because the world's going to end before we get there. So that's the newest battle I've been having to face in terms of talking to people about retirement. And one of the ways that I like to reposition that is you are guaranteeing yourself a financial apocalypse. So hopefully the world doesn't end and we live to a ripe old age. But if you don't invest for retirement and you aren't setting anything aside, you're guaranteeing yourself a financial apocalypse because what are you going to do when you get there? And heaven forbid something happen and you're unable to work or you have a health crisis, you have to be putting money aside. And as for the gambling slash lottery comparison to investing, I actually have a chapter in my book that talks about how investing is not gambling because I hate that comparison and I think we have to debunk it in order to get people more comfortable. And a big thing is also making sure that people understand the language of investing. I believe that that's a huge reason that it feels really inaccessible to a lot of folks. And once you start to understand the context of it and the language of it, and especially the history of the market, you start to feel a little bit more comfortable. And while we're not in control of it, you feel a little bit more in control of yourself and your portfolio. Just to remind listeners, we are chatting with Erin Lowry, who is Broke Millennial, and her new book, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. Erin, um, where is the best people, place for people to find you and information and insights and, you know, tap into all your fabulous knowledge? BrokeMillennial.com is my website, but 
as a true millennial, Twitter and Instagram are some of the best places to find me. So I'm on Twitter at Broke Millennial and Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog. And you can feel free to reach out to me on any of those platforms. And my books are available wherever books are sold, as well as hopefully your local library. I always like to make a plug for people to go and check it out at their library, too. Mm. Oh, my God. My first book event uh, or one of my very first book events, someone brought a copy of a book that of my book that they had uh, taken out of the New York Public Library and I, I broke into tears. So, yes, oh, that's so plug, cool. <laughs> plug for the libraries. Um, you know what, Aaron? you meant you mentioned um, you because we're talking about your book. You mentioned a certain part of your book. But I so I want to I got it. I know Marty's got questions, but I want to jump to page 207 of your book. Um, let's talk about the checklist for what the wealthy are doing and I noticed on that list, it's not buying lottery tickets. So, uh, now, so people and think of think of in terms of wealth or always or thinking about investing lottery tickets, whatever they're thinking about. How can I get wealthy? How are the wealthy? What are the wealthy doing? I loved asking that question to every expert that I interviewed for the book, because like everyone else, I was hoping to unearth some sort of magical formula, which of course does not exist. But primarily, it's starting early. It's being consistent. It's making sure that you're putting a little bit of risk on your money early and you're not being too conservative. All those kind of boring, cliche mantras of investing. However, there are some fun kernels in that chapter. It's not just all of the old advice. And one of the things, of course, is um, looking at tax loopholes, which we can debate certainly the ethics of that. But there are people, especially uber wealthy, who are looking for ways to legally minimize their taxes as much as possible. And then one of the things that I really thought was interesting, and this actually came from Sally Krawchuk, who talked about investing in emerging markets and industries. But one of the things I loved about how she positioned this advice is that it wasn't just specifically about investing your money into, let's say, an emerging country's market or an emerging market index fund. It was also about looking at your career and the viability for your career long term and how much you were going to be able to earn. And one of the ways that she expressed it is that if you're in a career where you have to be 10% better than everybody else long-term to make a lot of money, it sets yourself up for a harder situation than if you're in a career that is just growing so rapidly. Even if you are average, you are able to make a lot more money. The ceiling is a lot higher. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that was an interesting way to also evaluate career and opportunity. And of course, that being one of the biggest ways that you're building wealth. And she also positioned it as going and building your career in an emerging countries market. So if you have opportunity to move and travel abroad and build a company or a career in that market, it might also open up a lot more opportunity. That's great insight. That is absolutely true. And, you know, and and, uh, your point on, you know, tax loopholes, I mean, one of the, you go back to, go back to the R word that we were talking about. I mean, one of these things you got to do is, you know, reduce your income and you do that by putting it into what things aren't not tax loopholes, but things that are encouraged that reduce your income, like 401ks. So there we go. Um, Marty, what do you got? Yeah. 401ks. And, you know, I'm sure that a high percentage of our population do not understand simple things like compounded interest. Uh, No, I don't want you to answer that question. Uh, at this point in time, but I know that people don't understand some fundamentals. I, I'm really interested in an impact investing. Do you see that as uh, increasing with millennials? Uh, it seems to me, from what I hear and see and read, 
that uh, it's a it's a growing area, and actually, it seems like uh, there's good returns on some of this, uh, you know, impact investing. Talk to me about that. I would say there's certainly it is a growing faction of the market and what people are able to invest in. And I don't think it's just millennial specific because there mm-hmm. is something really lovely about being able to have control over the companies you invest in and vet them and make sure that they are aligned with your ethical and moral beliefs, which just wasn't really an option for investors in generations prior. And the advent really of technology when it comes to investing in micro investing apps in addition to robo advisors and just more transparency has really led to a rise in impact investing. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to returns, though, one thing that I always like to discuss is that If you are going to be an impact investor, I do recommend there is still some level of balance in your portfolio because if you exclusively focus on impact investing in a certain potentially small subset of the market, that could really hurt you when it comes to diversification overall. Mm -hmm. You still want to make sure that you have a very well diversified portfolio, that you're investing in a variety of industries and a variety of different companies, and that you're not just focusing all your money in this one small pot. Mm -hmm. Because if something happens to it, obviously your portfolio is going to tank. So I think it's great to have it as part of your overall picture, but exclusively focusing on impact investing, at least right now, it's still a growing market. Mm -hmm. Um, might not be the best long-term play. So you're talking about taking out some of the emotional part of it and really um, getting to work on it. And there is no magic wand. It takes work. Your book does a great job of describing a lot of these things. But I especially like the fact that you love podcasts so to help learn. And you have a whole section that talks about way you can things you sites you can go to to learn and podcast let's talk about that you know how some of the suggestions you have in the book for either books or podcasts or talk to me a little bit about that well you already mentioned one earlier which is jill on money i too love jill schlesinger so that's definitely a great option I would say, you know, Planet Money is wonderful. It's not necessarily investing specific, but it does such a great job of storytelling on about economics, which is not always easy to do. I really like Paula Pants Afford Anything. Again, not always about investing, but about a wide variety of financial topics. And it's always just such a thorough and thoughtful interview. Mm-hmm. And there are just so many opportunities to learn about money. And one of the points that I always love to get across in my books and also when I do interviews is if, you know, what I'm saying isn't connecting or my books aren't connecting, there is something out there that will. So you can't be discouraged just because one version didn't particularly work for you. And we now have podcasts and radio shows and TV shows and websites and blogs. And there's so many different options for consuming content. One thing, though, that I do really like in the book is one expert told me, when I was asking about different places you can go find more information, I love to bring up Reddit to get people's opinion Mm -hmm. on it. And she goes, Reddit is worth exactly what you pay for it. (laughs) And I just thought that that was really funny. And it's a great point because I think Reddit for me is a great place to go and look for article ideas because I'm seeing the questions that people are asking. Just be wary of the type of advice that you might be getting there. It is crowdsourced, so sometimes the cream does rise to the top and it's some actually great advice, but also sometimes it's dangerous advice. So please vet it against multiple other sources, especially sources that are more credible. 
and isn't an anonymous person writing it. Kelly, I um, have one I mean, more. You know, I wanted to ask Aaron, because, you know, we're t- all talking about in, in investing, but there, you mentioned at the beginning, of, and I think it's an important point, and, and so in this idea of podcasts and tools and all the rest of it, um, budgeting and, and not having that, uh, I want to say, shame over either, you know, what you're making and what it costs you to live. Any apps, recommendations on how people can... I'm going to say other than the R word, the B word, which they don't like, budget, um, and how they can get really comfortable with understanding what they're spending because they can't save it if they don't know what they're, where, they're, where, where all that money they're making is going. Yeah, so you're kicking it back to my first book, which is Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. And there's a huge chapter about the dreaded B word. And the first thing that I like to do is rebrand it, and I call it cash flow. It just sounds prettier. Yep. And it's, it's less annoying to folks. And at the end of the day, and the line that I like to use about cash flow is all it is, is calculating how much money you have coming in and how much money you have going out and what the difference is. And if that's a negative number, then you have to do a combination of cutting, but also focusing on increasing income. Because I think that so often the advice is cut, 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 cut. And I would really like the focus to also be more aligned with how can you earn more? Is that negotiating at work? Is that picking up a second job? What is it that can be increasing income instead of just focusing on how to cut things out? And then the two together can really launch you into kind of the next level when it comes to having money. But there are a few different strategies you can use. Obviously, there are apps, there are websites. I would say You Need a Budget is one of the best ones, although it is paid software. But if you really, really want intense control and to be put on a hard, disciplined option, that's a really good one to use. Although I believe if you're a student and have a .edu email, you get a certain number of years for free. Don't quote me on it, but I'm pretty sure that's an option. So I'd say you need a budget is one great tactic. But another thing is just to go back, print out your bank statements and your credit card statements for the last three to six months and look at every single purchase that you've made and start to actually do the audit of, am I mindlessly spending on anything? And this is not me gunning for your lattes. (laughs) This is me saying a lot of us do have mindless habitual spending somewhere. We all value things differently. I joke that I am a defender of the latte because I work from home and it means I actually leave my apartment and put on normal people clothing and go and interact with a human being in my day when I go and get a latte. So it's valuable to me. Plus, I think it's delicious. But if you're just mindlessly purchasing something, maybe it's a magazine, maybe it's latte, maybe to use a very tired cliche or gym membership if you're not using it, there's different ways that all of us can be leaking money and doing an audit on how you've been spending over a few month period is a really helpful way to see where you can plug those leaks. That's, that's fantastic. And then actually put the money into savings. That's the other <laughs> Into savings. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> to find something else mindless to spend it on. <laughs> so let's wrap up Kelly. Who's been our guest and uh, how do we get in touch with her? Well, haven't you been paying attention, Marty? We got, broke, we got Broke Millennial on the show. Haven't you been listening? Aaron, <laughs> remind everyone where you, they can find you and where's the best place to hunt you down with questions or content. You can find me at BrokeMillennial.com. The contact button at the top does go straight to my inbox if you do have a question. Also, every Wednesday on Instagram and my Instagram stories, I do an Ask Me Anything. So if you have a burning money question, please go submit one. So that's at BrokeMillennialBlog on Instagram. And on Twitter, I'm at BrokeMillennial. 
Okay, if, one last thing. If people do one thing today, what should it do with respect to making themselves, you know, say a uh, little healthier with their money? You know what I'm going to say is that you need to go check the interest rate on your savings account. This is one of my big soapbox things is picking better financial products. And if you are earning 0.01% or anything in that wheelhouse on your savings account, you need to move your money to a better bank solution. And it is very easy these days to get at least 2%, if not more. Awesome. Thanks for that final tip. Erin, it's been such a pleasure to have a fellow Tarsha Perigy uh, author on the show. And uh, thank you for being our guest on the Business Builder Show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Business Builder Show. To learn more about me and I'm Marty Wolf, go to MartyWolfBusinessSolutions.com. That's MartyWolfBusinessSolutions.com. To learn more about Kelly Hoey, go to her website, which is jkellyhoey.co. That's jkellyhoey.co. And of course, you can find Kelly and Marty on LinkedIn and Twitter. A reminder, you can find all our Business Builders shows on iTunes, Spotify, and on your favorite podcast app. Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf.